Welcome to Reading Around Macroeconomics. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today's reading comes to you from Jeffrey P. Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. But it's not something that you can read on his website or at Real Clear Markets. In fact, this is the transcript from Jeff's presentation at the Rebel Capitalist Live show on June 11th through the 13th. Jeff was the anchor of this three-day Gammon Festivus. Yes, at the end of three days, George Gammon invited Jeff to present, and this was a tour de force. What a presentation by Jeff. I missed it. I missed it. I wasn't there. But I've got the transcript. I'm reading out. I'm reading it out to you guys right now. It's absolutely worth your time. It covers ghost money, the great bullion famine, the rise of the euro dollar, and cryptocurrency and how it's all related how a modern 21st century matrix like cryptocurrency can be related to the 14th and 15th century responses to the black death to the shortage of bullion in europe it's absolutely fantastic i know you're going to enjoy it apparently the inflation debate has been settled the dollar's crash is finally here. Interest rates are about to skyrocket any minute, and the buzz around crypto validated. What could possibly argue any other way, especially with the last two monthly CPIs coming out of somewhere up in the stratosphere? Yet, despite those numbers and all the accusations stemming from them, each of these possibilities actually remain unlikely, to the point of being outliers. Inflation, interest rates, the fate of the dollar, the substance of the real dollar, and now digital currencies, the ultimate state of the global economy. What is it that ties all these things together? Money. What most people know of money comes straight out of the conventional textbook. It's first a worldview that first centers on central banks, the idea of a printing unleashed by open market operations. This notion is reinforced at every step of your education and then each and every day of your adult life, dominating every story in the financial media. Central bankers are the monetary stewards, the best and brightest minds whose sole task is to manage the currency affairs of the entire nation. Who knows more about money than these people? If that were the case, they should be able to measure money beyond simple measures like M2. I'm sure we've probably all seen those record M2 growth charts floating around over the past year. But what about more complex forms of money? What about the curious fate of M3? 15 years ago, these same currency bailiffs just quite out of the blue, it seemed, they decided M3 was no longer worth spending half a million dollars to keep compiling. The broadest mainstream definition of money, the one which had supposedly contained all that vast stored up knowledge about how things work, suddenly they were ditching that thing over a measly half mil? Immediately cries of conspiracy. It was, after all, the middle 2000s with asset bubbles in full bloom, 
credit-fueled monstrosities plaguing multiple geographies all over the world. This was actually the first clue about the real money nature. This stuff was global. In this instance, however, the Federal Reserve was being honest, but in being honest, accidentally spilled the beans in public. Central banks have been hiding a huge secret. What was in M3 anyway? It starts out with M2, which is the broadest current form of depository money. These are the most familiar aspects to the affair, though with a touch more interesting and complication than M1 with its boring checking accounts and whatnot. This is why, in the absence of M3, M2 still catches a fair amount of mainstream attention. It still feels like it's making sense. It's a comfortable, quaint idea when compared to what was in non-M2, M3, by contrast. Holy cow. This piece began with large denomination time deposits. Okay, no biggie. Easy enough. Then, something called repurchase agreements and also euro dollars. While the world may have become a little more aware of the second of those, repurchase agreements or repo, there's hardly any brain power spent over euro dollars. The reason the public hasn't ever heard much about these things is because it's not really so easy to figure them out. What the Federal Reserve actually said back in 2005 was the metric hadn't played any significant role in advising monetary policy in a very long time. Therefore, it just wasn't worth even minimal effort to keep it going, given what a huge headache these other things turned out to be. As I already said, this was actually true. You see, long before what happened with the US M3 late 2005 and early 2006, central banks all over the world, not just the Fed, had exited the money business entirely and not voluntarily. They were forced out by repo and euro dollar components that in reality had only represented the entrance into an extremely complicated, sometimes outwardly impenetrable hidden world of effective money. While this may seem like some crazy conspiracy theory, you need only review the history of it and just listen to the statements made by central bankers and monetary officials themselves. Contrary to the idea of central banks being omnipotent, omnipotent, this hidden world of effective money can explain a lot more about the past few decades of economic history and is as relevant today as it's ever been. Why hasn't inflation run away and the dollar collapsed since the Fed's record flood of liquidity from its first operations more than a decade ago? I could stand here and provide you with hundreds of such examples, maybe even make George read through them one by one as a sort of anticlimactic closing ceremony on what has been an awesome get-together. But in the interest of everyone's patience, I'll just provide a few here. What better example to begin with than one straight from the mouth of the maestro himself, 
Alan Greenspan in June of 2000, just a few years before this M3 episode, the FOMC was considering whether or not to recommend to Congress to let the money target provisions from 1978's Humphrey Hawkins Law sunset. Back in 78, some might remember, there was this thing called the Great Inflation, which was so bad that even the critters in Congress at the time couldn't help but realize there was a problem with money due to a central bank which didn't do its job. Humphrey Hawkins didn't just require whichever Federal Reserve chairperson to wander up to Capitol Hill and testify twice a year to nothing in particular, wasting the world's time. It also made the Fed calculate money supply targets produced from reasonable money supply estimates. The law demanded policymakers to keep doing this until the year 2000. Greenspan's counterpoint at the dawn of the new millennium was to admit they couldn't possibly live up to the obligation. The monetary system had changed so dramatically, had taken on radically new forms. This proliferation of products, as the maestro called this monetary evolution, the Federal Reserve had effectively given up very long time before then. They still filled out the forms for Congress, so to speak, and kept compiling those outdated statistics for the public. But they all knew those numbers were empty and largely useless. Again, as they stated in the M3 press release, the stats didn't really have a place. This obviously begs the question, What was this proliferation of products? To answer that question, the most important question of the 21st century, we have to go back in time to the late 50s and early 60s with the unexpected arrival of something called the Euro dollar. To be honest, no one really knows where this thing came from. There are several identifiable factors and a few more origin stories, and likely the truth is some combination of most, if not all, of them. In the very few places where this euro dollar did get noticed at the time, it was originally called the continental dollar, simply because from the mid-50s onward, there came to be this market for U.S. dollars in much of Europe. And it sure didn't stick to just the continent of Europe. Even before 1960, banks all over the world outside the United States had been regularly trading bank liabilities back and forth, even if still denominated in U.S. dollar terms. These were simply ledger entries rather than real-world cash transactions. A narrowly distributed ledger system acting like a virtual or fictional currency. It got to be huge business very quickly, for reasons we'll come back to. By 1963 and 1964, the Bank for International Settlements finally got motivated enough to take an official look, or try to. In requisitioning information from banks on their activities in this euro-dollar market, what its researchers found 
was a monetary system that didn't really behave in the same way as commonly understood at the time. The funny thing is, you can practically hear the Federal Reserve's 2005 press release announcing the end to USM3 echoing from the BIS's 1964 characterization of what was really the same influence. Now, the decade of the 60s was a period of massive turmoil and upheaval, and it was equally true down here in monetary and bank evolution. Superficially, still under the Bretton Woods system, during this decade, the growing euro-dollar specter had subsumed much, if not most, of the roles traditionally understood as those of a reserve currency. Coming in late to the party, as always, Federal Reserve policymakers didn't pay much attention to the euro-dollar until it was practically forced into their laps by 1968 and 69. Before then, it was widely believed that that U.S. dollar woes, golden balances, were due to a balance of payment problem. Little notice of euro dollars and their offshoots. But what Treasury and Fed officials eventually discovered was that this euro dollar system hadn't been limited to banks in Europe or even banks outside the United States. While the market for these ledger dollars was itself offshore and therefore had always been treated as something of a foreign or overseas issue unrelated to that balance of payments worldview, by 68 and 69, it came to be all too clear this was a mistake. In fact, as discussed by policymakers in April 1969, they had belatedly discovered how U.S. domestic banks were already heavy participants in this system. The text of that meeting described what had become an important source of financing for the whole world. Again, the roles of the reserve currency. In other parts of that discussion, the FOMC was astounded to learn American banks were transferring deposit liabilities to their often London-based subsidiaries or other offshore affiliates and then borrowing in interbank loans back from the euro-dollar market as needed. A cross-border dollar flow in both directions, only with no actual dollars involved. Dollars of account. From then on, the Federal Reserve's records show dozens of attempts, numerous discussions about how these euro dollars were absolutely impacting domestic monetary conditions. U.S. banks were tapping in along with much of the rest of the world. The euro dollar system had influenced economic affairs without regard to national boundaries. By the time President Nixon closed the gold window and officially ended the Bretton Woods regime in 1971, euro dollars had already taken over from it. Because the euro dollar market had come to be an important monetary source for the domestic economy and its banking system, the FOMC struggled to incorporate this fact into its into first its policy framework and then somehow into some reasonable guess of its size 
and the size of that source. Keeping in mind what the BIS had wrote a decade before, officials repeatedly discussed how this evolution had already, by the early 70s, obsoleted M1 at the very least, and that a proposed version of M2, which in those days ended up including some crude figures on euro dollars, even that would be quickly overtaken by even more changes. It was recommended repeatedly that someone get to work on a legit M3 or better. This was not, however, the same M3 that eventually was produced, but it does help explain why it was so easily discarded after only a couple of highly contentious debate de decades, not debates. In 1984, at a conference sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, former Treasury Undersecretary of, oh, Jay, let me start over. I haven't had any rum. I'm reading this very early. Forgive me, dear audience. In 1984, at a conference sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, former Treasury Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs, Robert Rusa, relatively easily described a useful overview of this underlying nature to the offshore system. This money had, Rusa relayed, taken the form of networks, of interbank relationships at whose end, as, were as well as spilling over in its middle or from its beginning, new supplies of what take new supplies of what take the denomination new supplies which take the denomination of the US dollar but do so far outside the Federal Reserve's capacities and in ways very different from popular imagination. This ledger, fictional, virtual money, was a creation of the banking system essentially maintaining this kind of shared ledger. But you see, by 1984, the Fed had already by then mostly moved on from this money expansion it couldn't keep up with into something else entirely combined with it being offshore and outside the U.S. and further aided by what seemed to be highly beneficial byproducts, in the post-Great Inflation era, you might begin to understand why central bankers wondered if there was really any real path to defining, let alone measuring anything. Congress made them, yet producing a realistic M3 in any meaningful sense was maybe literally impossible. That didn't stop a few brave souls from at least attempting an honest offshore money survey, those who were on the hook from operating in this virtual dollar system. A very few, some like Morgan Guarantee, what they could surmise of this euro currency market. And to be clear, the term euro here doesn't mean the European common currency which came about in the 90s. Rather, it means this entire offshore monetary system which encompasses the euro dollar. In fact, as we'll also see shortly, there really isn't any difference between those terms. Euro currency is effectively euro dollar, meaning 
offshore global money and the reserve currency functions are all done in these wide shadows. But what kind of proportions had Morgan uncovered? How wide might they have become? In the mid-1980s, while the world was enthralled by Paul Volcker, Morgan Guarantee pegged euro currency at around 1.3 trillion gross. We won't pay any attention to their net number since history has shown it was a distinction without a difference. That was an impressive balance, not only in how M2 at the same time was just a little over 1.5 trillion. It was perhaps even more startling given how in the early 60s, the entire market might have been something like 50 billion total. And as we just touched on, that had been enough to cause some major issues back then. Here's the thing though, while the Federal Reserve increasingly turned its back on money and any definitions in any meaningful sense, by March 1988, Morgan Guarantee had put the euro currency boundary at a shocking 4.6 trillion. Total domestic depository money, the entire traditional money supply, M2, in that same month was substantially less at 2.4 trillion. Even the half-hearted M3 was just more than 3 trillion. Yet here was Morgan Guarantee saying incredibly that the offshore dollar system was substantially more than the entirety of its onshore counterpart by every existing measure. And it only got worse in several ways. First, I don't have any further estimates to give you beyond March 88 because Morgan Guarantee stopped producing them. In other words, they were already having trouble too, especially in the sense of wanting to do so honestly. They just couldn't keep up no matter how determined and how much they actually put in to the effort. In fact, there wouldn't be any other real attempts, none that I am aware of, certainly nothing from the Fed until after the first global financial crisis. In the immediate aftermath of that thing, a few outside the Fed went back into their records having realized what the global financial crisis really had been and what it actually represented. It hadn't really been subprime mortgages, rather big problems in the world's dollar problem, which had developed over the intervening decades. The BIS by 2009 reckoned, rough guess, this euro currency stuff had maybe gone from around 10 trillion at the beginning of 2000 and then simply exploded to perhaps 34 trillion at the doorstep of that crisis. That's not all. They also thought that within this system, a funding gap, a synthetic dollar short had emerged of a truly overwhelming magnitude, combining <clears throat> combing through bank statements as well as information not available to the public, researchers believe this U.S. dollar funding gap might have been as little as $2 trillion by the middle of 2000 and maybe as much as $6.5 trillion. 
the upper bound estimate for this offshore dollar funding gap alone was nearly as much as total M2 had been at the same time. And we're only just getting started. Let's go back to M3 again. While it obviously hadn't included much of the actual euro dollar funding, it didn't capture that other part, repo, either. Surveying mostly what primary dealers were reporting, this left most of the repo market out of it. And it didn't have any way of measuring the complexities of collateral. How would anyone attempt to cram collateral factors into one of the M's? And repo had displayed from early on a much more direct and solid connection to money's medium of exchange function, despite how it might seem at first to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Going back to the late 60s and early 70s, some economists at the time had noticed the tremendous growth of repo using that period and also couldn't help but see that the way repo was being used was different from its earliest practices. Though, in fact, the repo market goes back to before the 1920s. What was being done with it in the 70s was more consistent with the rest of this monetary evolution underway at that time. A medium of exchange outside all official definitions of money existing. Large companies had essentially converted their checking account checking accounts into interest-bearing assets by lending in repo markets, while still maintaining the ability to draw on repo funds on demand. Not only that, we have to keep in mind there are two sides to consider when contemplating repo and money. As I just said, collateral, collateral, collateral. It isn't actually a repurchase agreement like specified by its formal name. Rather, these are vast collateralized interbank loans, networks of interbank relations themselves with use and availability of specific financial instruments acting currency-like all their own. What had kept the Fed as well as even Morgan Guarantee from completing useful monetary surveys was how what was incredibly innovative and strange back then soon became standard and then overwritten by the next even more innovating and strange soon-to-be standard technique. This bank-centered money never stands still, and it seriously stretches the imagination. That best describes the collateral side of repo, where dealers in this segment of the shadow money system began to destroy all the boundaries any reasonable person might have otherwise attached to items like collateral. Securities weren't just pledged in repo, they were lent, borrowed, transformed, repledged, reused, and rehypothecated. In fact, these things had become so vital, so crucial, that in the frenzy to stay on top of them, it had led many to openly and obviously flaunt regulations and laws. Even to the point that in the early 1990s, Solomon Brothers, one of the heaviest haters on Wall Street, had actually risked its entire business on cheating at U.S. Treasury auctions. 
outright and openly cheating, faking order books to circumvent position limits later imposed by Treasury, also that the firm could grab more than its share of the most highly prized repo collateral. And it wasn't just Treasuries as collateral, and Solomon wasn't close to the only one. The firm also cooked its books, bidding for agency paper too, triggering a rash of official responses, including Treasury coming within a hair of revoking Solomon's primary dealer status, a virtual death penalty, a fate only narrowly avoided when Warren Buffett rode in at the last hour to rescue the bank. Having seen what Solomon was up to, Treasury, the Fed, and SEC then decided to look at other dealers. The government was shocked, shocked to learn that gambling was going on in here. Shocked to learn almost everyone, 98 of them, especially in the agency auction process, were rigging their books for one reason, to ensure they receive their share of whatever amount, whichever GSC was auctioning off at whenever time. And the government, including the Fed, was stunned by all this gross malfeasance and fraud simply because it hadn't wanted to delve near far enough into these monetary complexities. Yet this fiasco had represented otherwise a very clear signpost from the collateral side of repo, how big and important it must have become already by then. Dealers, these ledger participants, all up and down the line, big and small, were going to extreme lengths to secure the best forms of collateral. And this was just 1991. The implications weren't appreciated. Meaning that when the time came in 2007, the world focused on subprime mortgages rather than vastly more destructive forces contained in collateral chains and such. For purposes of scale and comparison, in 2008 repo fails, that is, repo transactions that fail to be unwound, usually by the collateral side failing to deliver the security back to its original owner, absolutely surge, practically handing officials a direct window into the nature of this global dollar shortage. Fails around the time Bear Stearns was driven from the ranks of going concerns by its own collateral scarcity had surged to more than $2 trillion in several weekly intervals. When Lehman and AIG were similarly impaired by their own collateral scarcity problems, Fails that week in mid-September had been more than $3.5 trillion. By the middle of October, each week then saw more than $5 trillion fails. The very same weeks that developed into the worst financial panic since the Great Depression. Just to remind you, total M2 the week before Lehman was, by comparison, a little less than $7.8 trillion. And there's more pieces still to outline of what's on these euro-dollar ledgers. 
Repo and its collateral side was one specific kind, taking money further away from its more comfortable traditional formats. Just one of Alan Greenspan's proliferation of products? Others were stranger and more complex still. Back in 1981, a couple of researchers had actually put together a pretty solid catalog of them, doing such good work that 40 years later, it has easily withstood the tests of history. To begin with, Gunther Duffy and Ian Giddy had realized what the combination of these proliferated financial products had done for the euro currency market. It had been transformed greatly beyond the boundaries of simple deposit mechanics. Because of this, there really hadn't been a euro currency market at all. Not really a useful distinction. Any other currency denominations within it were simply the other side of euro dollar transactions, reaffirming the euro dollar status as the actual functioning global reserve currency regime. Thus, looking back to Morgan Guarantee's figures, or actually ahead from their perspective, those estimates of the euro currency boundary actually had represented total euro dollar penetration. Offshore US dollar liabilities, and not nearly all of them, that were substantially greater in what could be identified than onshore US dollars contained in any of the so-called broad money aggregates. But this proliferation of financial products had also expanded the boundaries of what a dollar liability could be. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Duffy and Giddy had seen and written about all manner of other seemingly outlandish transaction types that back then no one would associate with usable money stock. These are things like currency swaps and futures, forward instruments, euro bonds, even a simple debt instrument, let alone their growing importance in the collateral properties of global U.S. dollar repo, and so on. In terms of accounting for any of them, not only were they omitted from any notional monetary statistics like M3, no one would have even realized they needed to start thinking about doing so. These things didn't really show up on individual bank balance sheet reports and statements either. A currency swap really could be used in a monetary capacity, but only its black box calculated market value might make its way onto a reporting of some kind. The gross notional value likely only ever recognized deep in the growing footnotes of bank statements. This was when derivative contracts like Eurodollar futures and interest rate swaps became standardized and traded openly on exchanges like the one in Chicago. Currency swaps followed the same way in short order. So let's step back in the moment. Even in the early 90s, we had X amount of studied Eurodollar, Y of repo and collateral, and now Z of other products, some trillions more compared to the only few trillion in the official M's. And this was 30 years ago. In 1992, for example, Britain's pound sterling was pounded into crisis by quote-unquote currency traders 
who I'll tell you almost certainly hadn't handled any actual currency in their lifetimes. Yet, the pound was sunk beyond any capacity for any central bank, even the Venerable Bank of England, working with the Greenspan's Fed. Undeterred, throughout the decade of the 90s in particular, only further development of both derivatives as money, along with relatedly more and more non-bank participants in this deep end of the money pool. LTCM became merely the most famous example, if only because it was a warning that wasn't heeded. The Fed and other regulators treated it as hedge fund it was, only noteworthy for how none of its big counterparties had ever needed to report their money business and financial exposures to it. In practice, LTCM had been an important player in connecting, sourcing, and redistributing Eurodollar resources via complex derivatives, especially swaps, throughout various parts around the world, Russia and Asia in particular. And it did all this shadow money business in ways that weren't captured on its balance sheet. This one balance sheet alone reported nearly 1.5 trillion in swaps. But LTCM was hardly alone in doing these things. They were the one who, at the time, got caught sideways. In fact, even the more clued in of the FOMC circle of policymakers, Peter Fisher, in this case, admitted in private discussion that he couldn't even begin to calculate the leveraged use in this one non-bank example. Yet, 10 years later, the same regulators were shocked, shocked at how widespread this stuff had become, particularly the off-balance sheet money leverage that had been pulled into every corner of the banking system from the shadows. So, by the time we get to the early stages of the GFC, then we have to presume, quite reasonably, that these derivatives and off-balance money portions were likewise off the charts. Having ended M3 and thereby depriving the world of what could have been a chance to peer into the huge, massive shadows if the Fed had chosen monetary honesty, Ben Bernanke instead later fatuously admitted, once the worst of the crisis had struck, that maybe the money business was more complicated than he or any central bankers had let on. Meanwhile, at the same time, the simple money measures like M2 didn't just miss the crisis. They really had been useless to the point of misleading anyone depending on them. It is seasonally adjusted in its seasonally adjusted figures. Nothing seemed particularly unusual up until September 2008, and then M2 jumped upward even as the rest of the world experienced the worst monetary meltdown since 1929. And in the aftermath of the latest crisis, we see those same record M2 growth charts. Shadow money versus a grossly outdated world view. This isn't really about M2 or M3. Remember what Greenspan said back in June 2000? This proliferation of products had made defining even understanding 
the real nature of this actual operating real-world monetary system extremely difficult, even more so if you never try or make any real effort. Having just reviewed what this proliferation of monetary products sort of look like, and given some rough guesses about just how it compared to the visible domestic money perception, where did all this come from? We've defined the mechanics and some of their proportions to the best of our admittedly limited abilities. But why so much innovation and why did it show all up when it did? It all goes back to Bretton Woods and its singular eventual fatal flaw. Quite understandably, understandably, in the immediate aftermath of the Great Depression, while still enduring the more destructive and deadly war, uh, thinking ahead to the post-war monetary era and what that might look like, its chief architects, Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes, realized they'd have to piece together some kind of hard money standard. Gold exchange, however, presented unforeseen challenges by linking national gold reserves to national issued currency, given the unanticipated demands for currency from a rapidly growing and globalizing post-war world. Distilled by economist Robert Triffin as essentially a paradox, he said that the world needed more currency for legitimate economic growth than could be supplied by any nation's reserves backing it. Eventually, those reserves would be depleted and the whole thing would unravel, as it finally did. The euro dollar was in many ways an elegant solution to work around this problem. Irredeemable, non-reservable, basically virtual currency issued, using quotation marks, by a global banking system, even if sticking with nominally the US dollar denomination. This ledger money, or money of account, arose from what had been an increasingly indelicate global money shortage. But while the euro dollar's techniques and forms were entirely new to human experience, this convention wasn't at all. We can actually go far back into history, the late medieval period, in fact, to see practically the same thing arise in response to the same basic situation of monetary scarcity. In between the Great Plague of the mid-14th century and the Age of Discovery beginning at the end of the 15th, there had been a sustained monetary disturbance, which eventually led Columbus and those who followed him outward from Europe searching for new trade routes and precious metals. Following the Black Death, for a variety of reasons, Europe found itself increasingly short of especially silver and silver coins. The plague had killed off laborers to the point it was hard to spare them working in mines. Plus, much of the easy-to-pick silver had been cleared out already. Mints began to shutter operations and then close their doors entirely. A possible balance of payment shortage developed particularly with the Far East. Europeans, depleted of skilled craftsmen and with deflationary prices making it uneconomical, trade grew more and more as a one-way affair. Goods coming in and hard coin heading out to the far reaches of the globe. 
all of these things eventually came to be known as the Great Bullion Famine. In response to the money shortage, humans did what humans always do, especially enterprising commercial agents. They innovated, experimented, pushed boundaries. Double book entry accounting had been developed in Venice and had spread so that in place of physical coins, increasingly scarce merchants could still conduct business using ledgers. This effectively separated monetary functions. Ledgers would perform exactly as a medium of exchange, while the fictional currency behind them, the unit of account across a variety of these. The store of value function would still be left to precious metals and official coinage. The practical effect was to induce unofficial private money elasticity in the face of official public money shortage, also called money of account, backed by fictive currencies denominated in coins long since out of circulation, or even, in many cases, perfect ideal coins, like one containing a full hypothetical pound of Flemish silver, perhaps a pound of English sterling, that didn't actually exist. Ghost money. Whatever its name, the practical effect was elasticity in a different kind of medium or exchange. Thus, we can see the similarities and the natural, organic human tendencies contained within. In the 15th century, the Great Bullion Famine induced localized money elasticity brought about by these ghost money ledger systems. In the immediate post-war 20th century, unforeseen constraints embedded within the official Bretton Woods framework had led global banks to pursue a similar virtual ghostly form of ledger money too. Fictional money, distributed ledgers, and virtual currencies. These things may already sound a lot like crypto, because they are. There have been all kinds of misconceptions and downright intentionally misleading theories and characterizations of the post-2008 era, the vast majority having to do with quantitative easing, otherwise called money printing. According to this view, central banks like the Fed haven't just done enough to put that allegedly subprime crisis to bed for good. They keep doing more QE, risking going way too far, blowing past the boundaries of inflation, maybe to the point of hyperinflation and dollar destruction. But why more QEs if they are so effective in money or liquidity? While we don't have any real good or even partly completed quantitative measures for global euro-dollar shadow money condition, I mean that was the whole point of the last half hour or so, we do have a few useful proxies from which we might begin to draw useful conclusions about what it must have been like since 2007 in these ghostly monetary shadows. One of them is the Treasury Department's tick data, Treasury International Capital. Most people know this as the amount of US dollar assets foreigners buy or sell in any given month. To begin with, what you find in this regard is that when the entire effective offshore system in all its virtual ways is working well and 
creating more than plentiful supplies of ledger ghost euro dollars, quite intuitively, foreigners end up buying a whole lot more U.S. dollar assets with them. Conversely, fewer ghost euro dollars, fewer dollar asset purchases to the point of outright selling them during the worst global dollar shortages. In addition to foreign asset holdings, TIC also provides cross-border U.S. dollar banking data. Basically, going back to 1968 and 1969, the government, at the very least, has acknowledged how U.S. banks borrow from the euro-dollar world as well as lend into it. Dollars come in and they go out. What we can make from it, however, is pretty simple. Along with the foreign net purchases of U.S. dollar assets, in the pre-crisis period, U.S. banks were doing more dollar borrowing at the same time they were extending liabilities to the rest of the world too. An obviously robust offshore shadow money ecosystem. Up to the middle of 2007, each of these is also consistent with at least the monetary direction indicated by M2. But in these shadow Eurodollar proxies, the post-crisis age ends up looking very different. Not just with respect to the way it had been working before August 2007, but also completely different than how M2 suggests the monetary system has performed. M2 would tell you that it's been back to normal or better. According to these others, it really does seem like the shadows broke down and then never recovered, despite so many QEs and other central bank policies. Perhaps that's why they were repeated efforts of QE. We can do this with other data too. Here, I'll use the Federal Reserve's own figures supplied in its otherwise comprehensive Z1 series, the Financial Accounts of the United States. This time, though, we are limited to only what gets reported by domestic financial agents and firms, both banks and non-banks. In other words, this data doesn't even include offshore, just the traditional and non-traditional money types, which show up in domestic hands. Here, I've included reported repo liabilities, like those drawn from federal funds, and then commercial paper, the kinds of shadow money that doesn't get anywhere near an M2 nor M3 if it had been kept up. And yet, even though it's only domestic reports, just like the tick data, we find the exact same pattern. Growth in the pre-crisis era and then nothing post-crisis, no matter what the Fed did along the way. All of these indicating quite clearly how the 2008 event may not have been a temporary or one-off global virtual dollar problem. These findings are then perfectly consistent with market behavior, especially markets for U.S. Treasuries or Euro-dollar futures, which have near-continuously signaled the same as this other shadow data ever since 2007. Contrary to the textbooks, persistently low interest rates, like U.S. Treasury bond yields, are a definitive sign for tight money in any effective sense. 
This was Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy, which still survives despite every bit of historical evidence refuting the mainstream idea given by central banks that low yields and rates are somehow stimulus. This hadn't been true during the great inflation when rates skyrocketed as ghost euro dollars became only too plentiful. And it hadn't been true on the other end during the deflationary 1930s when rates behaved almost exactly in the same way they have over the last decade or so. It's perfectly understandable why most people are confused about all these things, including the actual state of the economy. For what the public knows, the Federal Reserve confronted a subprime mortgage crisis by printing trillions in new money, leading to a recovery, eventually even a booming economy. Certainly before COVID. Having no idea about shadow and offshore money, they see M2 going up by a lot. The Fed's balance sheet explode upward. GDP goes higher. So you can forgive them for being constantly more concerned about inflation, even though they have no idea why it fails to show up apart from a few relatively small short bursts here or there. The actual situation is very different. On the contrary, the global reserve euro dollar broke down all the way back in 2007. This completely changed the economy's potential while it did and has remained a persistent and severe drag suppressing economic trends all over the world, the US included. The Fed never printed money. All it really does is continuously react to these problems they have no hope of actually fixing with only more bank reserves that have little useful place on the shadow euro dollar ledgers. Notice that's the one thing we haven't even mentioned after more than half an hour of talking about money, bank reserves, what the Federal Reserve does. It's everything else which matters. Because of that, for a whole range of data proxies to market performance and behavior, even economic circumstances and GDP measures, everything, all of it, uniformly identifies tight money for all this time, regardless of the traditional money statistics or any central bank's balance sheet. So where does crypto and digital currencies therefore fit into everything here? Well, if money shortages throughout history have led to the appearance and sustaining of ledger or ghost money forms, those like during the bullion famine of the 14th and 15th century, and then the euro dollar itself because of Triffin's paradox, would we be shocked if the same thing has happened in the wake of the last almost 14 years of what has been an actual euro dollar famine? Most people probably would, because they still think in terms of M2 or QE as money printing. From those, any idea of continuously harmfully tight money would be impossible. They also believe low rates are stimulus when these are all just fallacies taken for granted because it gets repeated as fact in all mainstream sources. This ghost euro dollar ledger money, money of account, however, should sound eerily similar and familiar to anyone paying the slightest attention to crypto and digital currency. 
we only have to clear up that misconception first. The public in general has been piling into crypto and digital now twice because it has been led to their understandable ignorance of all these things to the exactly wrong interpretations. Thinking the Fed is printing too much money, destroying the dollar, and about to unleash ungodly inflation, first in 2017, and now again, starting last October, a crypto price bubble has been built upon the notion that digital assets will soon be a required store of value to weather the inflation gale that never shows up. Underneath all that, even acknowledging what's quote-unquote written on Bitcoin's Genesis block, what has actually driven digital revolution, this distributed ledger technology, has been the ample opportunity to deliver transactional function, maybe even including a fictive unit of account that would have been right at home in the 15th century. Not a store of value, but elasticity, a door that has been left open by the inelasticity of the Lascos money, ledger regime that hasn't been able to put itself back together. The global reserve has been left too tight. The public is reacting to central banks who continuously have to react to this other inelastic shadow money reality. And that's where the longer run value lies. And what's keeping up innovation and movement in digital currencies, no matter how many obstacles have been thrown in its way, and will continue to be. The proliferation of crypto products is simply another in a long line of ghost money traditions predicated on gross money shortages, even if its prices swing wildly based on a very deep misunderstanding of money itself. Ironically, the very same one causing central bankers to likewise swing wildly. What to make of inflationary possibilities? What to make of growth potential? Where does digital money really fit into all these things? Ultimately, these are all tied to money, actual money, as it is not as how it has... I'm sorry, let me start again. Ultimately, these are all tied to money, actual money, as it is not as how it's written in incomplete and outdated textbooks. You can't even come close to describing money, much less understanding it with common measures like excess reserves or M2. No legitimate, reasonable answers are available without first understanding fictive currency, consulting with the shadows. Yes, ghosts are very real, and in money, historically and currently very important. I hope you enjoyed that reading of Jeff Snyder presenting at the Rebel Capitalist Miami get-together. The next Rebel Capitalist get-together is happening in Houston, Texas. It's going to be taking place on the 7th, 8th, and 9th of January. You can go to rebelcapitalistlive.com and register as well as learn about uh, which speakers will be in attendance besides George himself? And they are 
Dr. Ron Paul will be there, G. Edward Griffin, Robert Kiyosaki, Chris Cole, Ken McElroy, Lynn Alden, Jason Hartman, Joseph Wang, Lynette Zhang, Simon Karen, Mark Moss. Those are just the guys that are ladies that are announced right now. There's a big section here that says to be announced. Woo! Anyways, you can learn all about George and his social media uh, platforms at George. Yaman.com. He's on YouTube. He's on Twitter. He's on Instagram. He's on Facebook. He's doing important work, and I encourage you to check him out. Jeff Snyder, you can find more of his writings at Alhambra Investments and on the YouTube show that he does with me weekly called Making Sense. I hope you have a good rest of your day. See you soon.